Thank you very much. I'd like to ask you tonight to open your Bibles to the fourth chapter of the book of Hebrews. And while you're turning there, let me just say that after the service this morning, I had a couple of folks who inquired about the acceptability, I guess, acceptability to the Lord of uh, our saving toward the future or in view of a coming calamity or disaster and whether that's scripturally allowable. And the answer to that is, of course, it's all right to do some, I guess you could say, some hoarding in view of a possible disaster. You shouldn't be hoarding in view of the day of the Lord. You're not going to be in the day of the Lord. And in fact, the scripture says, the Lord said, that you don't want to lay up your treasures here. He said to lay them up in heaven. So I wouldn't lay them up here to fall into the hands of the Antichrist. I would lay them up in heaven. And if we want to have a little set aside in in case the economy fails or something like that, well, that's actually the book of Proverbs has verses that would encourage that kind of thing. But I think you certainly understood that the point was that we don't live in fear of this great day of doom coming and what are we going to do when it falls upon us. It's not going to fall upon the Lord's people. I've said that I know a number of times today and I really hope that you won't find yourself recoiling from that or I hope that uh, the passage this morning really persuaded you of that. I'm not going to be able to spend much more time on it in this morning's series, but that's all due to the love of the Lord for us. Keep yourself in that love. And as we live more and more toward the end of all of these things that the Bible foretells, then there's all the more reason for us to put on our heads the confident expectation of our salvation and to live with that peace in our hearts and with this wonderful assurance that the Lord is going to return for His own. Well, I hope that you are really profiting from our reading together in Pilgrim's Progress. It's just been a great delight, especially to hear from quite a number of you of what you're doing with your children and of their enjoyment of this and entering into it. And we're going to spend uh, just a little time, I think I have eight or nine slides tonight, and they really, I trust, will funnel us right in to what we're going to be dealing with in this passage in preparation for the Lord's table. Before we look at those particular slides, though, I want to show you one that has nothing to do with Pilgrim's Progress, but I will make reference to it later in the message tonight. And so I just want you to eye this for a moment. That is a great monument that sits in St. Paul's Cathedral in London. And if you visit that really marvelous building, one of the most beautiful in all the world, 
uh, you cannot miss this particular monument. It sits just to the side of, on the north side of the, what they call the nave, the main seating area in the cathedral. It occupies a whole center bay like that. That's 40 feet tall up there to the top of that. And uh, there is a sarcophagus there with an effigy on the top of it that I'll mention later tonight in the message. Then on either side in bronze casting, um, you have valor in conflict with cowardice. And on the other side, you have truth triumphing over falsehood. And then at the top of that, there's a mounted rider. And I think it's nearly life-size or is life-size up there. So if you would just keep that in your mind. I want to take us tonight to what we've been doing. The first part of the reading that we did was after evangelist pointed the way to pilgrim or Christian, telling him to go to the wicked gate. And I do want to take up the matter that I think most of us end up with a question about when we read this book. And that is, is Bunyan presenting this man's salvation as occurring when he passes through the wicked gate or later when he comes to the cross. And that's been a matter of a lot of discussion, some disputation with dogmatism uh, through the centuries. And we will take that up probably next Lord's Day evening, but not tonight. So he's pointing him the way. The second reading is the one that we did for this week. And um, that's all the way from Interpreter's House up through the Palace Beautiful. And then I want to go ahead and tell you about this week's reading. You have it in your uh, worship guide. It was there, but from Palace Beautiful to Meeting Talkative. And you, of course, can read ahead, but in terms of what we're going to do, we won't actually begin our reading of the conversation this week. We'll just get to that point. There's quite a lot uh, between Palace Beautiful and his meeting talkative there. Now, in the portion that we read this week, what I want to call our attention to primarily are the images that this man saw in the interpreter's house. The interpreter showed him seven different images. The interpreter probably is the Holy Spirit. Not a human preacher, because the first image that interpreter shows him is of a very grave person with a book in his hand and a crown on his head and his back turned to the world. And he speaks as if he does plead with men. And that is a picture of a Christian preacher. Then you have a parlor full of dust and someone sweeping it. Then he shows him two children. Do you remember what their names were? What were the names of these two children that he sees? What was, what was one name? Passion. And in contrast, patience. Passion has to have everything right now. Patience is willing to wait for the reward. And then he shows him a fire burning against a wall and two, it looks like two men initially, one on one side, one on the other side. And they both have something to do with this fire as it's burning. 
And then there is a stately palace and valiant men uh, trying to find their way in and then a man in an iron cage. Such a sad, uh, really tragic picture. And unfortunately one that is very, very true of some people who have evidently sinned away their day of grace. And then lastly, one rising out of bed and trembling at the thought of judgment to come. Now, of those seven images, the one that I want to take our attention to tonight is the fourth, and that is this fire burning against the wall. And when interpreter and Christian there on the right stand and they look at this, of course, all they can see is the one figure. And what he's trying to do is douse the fire. And the thing that is so amazing to Christian is the fire continues to burn unabated. It's not affected at all by the efforts of this person. And Christian wonders about this. And the interpreter has him look behind the wall. And there's another figure there. And he has oil that he is applying to the fire. And that's the secret of why the water on the other side cannot put it out. Well, when interpreter explains this to him, do you remember who the figure on the one side of the wall attempting to douse the flame, do you remember who he represents? Who does he represent? Something demonic or the devil. The fire is really the, the flame burning in the heart of a true believer. And on the other side, the other figure interpreter says, is Christ. And what he's doing constantly is applying grace so that that flame continues to burn up brightly all the time. Now, I want to raise a question tonight after looking at that. Now, that's the question, well, I should read this. This is Christ to continue with the oil of his grace, maintains the work already begun in the heart by the means of which, notwithstanding what the devil can do, the souls of his people prove gracious still. And in that thou sawest that the man stood behind the wall to maintain the fire, this is to teach thee that it is hard for the tempted to see how this work of grace is maintained. That's the point of the wall. And as a Christian, you know somehow that Christ is doing something for you or you would have fallen to your total demise long ago. But it's difficult to understand how this actually takes place. And that's what I want to key off of tonight. Would you read with me, please? And Ben, you can go ahead and close the PowerPoint down. Would you read with me, please, Hebrews chapter 4, verses 14 through 16. Therefore, 
since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses or our infirmities, as the King James says. But we have a high priest who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. Therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Folks, when it comes to this question of what is the secret of Christ somehow maintaining us, preserving us through the application of grace and grace and grace like oil applied to something almost as a flame, living and animated. What is the secret to Christ applying that grace to our hearts? Well, one answer to that is in this text. This occurs when we draw near. How does this happen? This is one of the Bible's answers. And it's an answer in terms of what we do. We draw near to the throne of grace that we may obtain and that we may receive. Obtain what? Mercy. Receive what? Grace. We draw near. And when we do so, Jesus Christ, for His part, extends grace to us. Like the applying of oil to the flame or to the fire. Now folks, that means that when we come to the Lord's table like this tonight, the Lord Jesus Himself time after time after time through our spiritual experience is actually visibly and then by command told us to come for this. Bunyan didn't picture all of this, but it would be as if the figure Christ on the one side of the wall was saying continually, come, come, come. And to be sure that we would do that, the Lord Jesus commanded that we regularly partake of the symbols of the shedding of His blood for us and of the breaking of His body for us. And it's by coming, as we do that, that we are brought right to the throne of grace. And yet I'm very much aware that this is what we sometimes may be hesitating to do. Why is that? Well, sometimes because we're tired. 
We can hardly get up the energy. There's nothing in us that really rises to it. We're fatigued. Sometimes because we're sick. Sometimes because we're distracted. But maybe most of the time when we hesitate to come, it's because we feel ashamed again. And what I want to do tonight is to urge us not to hesitate. Do not hesitate tonight to come for mercy and the application of yet more grace to your life. Why not? The answer to that is in terms of what this passage is saying. And the essential thing that it's saying is this, and I'm still by way of introduction. The primary thing that it's saying is that you have a priest. Would you notice please this wording in verse 14? We have a great high priest. The wording in verse 15. I'm going to leave out the do not. We have a high priest. We do not have a high priest who can't sympathize. It's the opposite that's true. We have a high priest who can sympathize. Do you have a high priest with God tonight? If you are a confessing Jewish person, you have no priest with God tonight. That is true of all Jews all over the world. If they are practicing Jews, they have no priest with God. There is a war going on in Israel. Even as we're meeting tonight, people are dying. Some of those people are members of the Israeli Defense Force. They're soldiers, men and women. They have no priest with God. Do you have a priest tonight? There is no one who will be acceptable before God who is not represented by an acceptable priest. If you're a Christian tonight, your confession is that you do have such a priest. At the end of verse 14, your confession. The passage is admonishing you, hold fast your confession. What is your confession? It includes this, that you have the acceptable high priest, that you possess him. And the passage, of course, is assuming that that's your confession, The passage is assuming that. What an irony and what a tragedy that the book in which we're reading that is a book that is actually written to Jewish people. It's entitled Hebrews. And those are the very people tonight without a priest. But if you're a Christian, you have a priest, and what 
is really blessed is this, that there's only one of them. It is so satisfying to be able to say that from your heart. There's only one. And he's mine. Can you say that? Folks, there's only one. There's one mediator now between God and men. And he's ours. We have the great high priest. And that is the primary basis on which we're summoned in this passage to come again to receive mercy and obtain grace. And the primary arguments that we have here concern the nature of our high priest. So I want to call your attention to the four tremendous truths that this passage sets before us about the nature of the high priest whom we have. First of all, there is this, and it's embedded in verse 14. It's actually the second of the points that is made, but it's the matter of who he is. And we're told here that he is Jesus, the Savior, the Son of God. That really is the huge point here, that Jesus is the Son of God. That is the bold argument of the entirety of the four Gospels. That is the irrefutable argument of all of Jesus' miracles. That is the public and grand and glorious assertion of the resurrection. That Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Mary, is the son of God. That is the first huge matter. That is the fundamental matter. That is the heart of the whole matter when it comes to an acceptable priest with God. This person is God's very son. And the second great thing that is said, though it's first in the passage, is where he is. If we had an earthly priest tonight, where would he be? Well, he would be officiating in some sacred precinct here on earth, supposedly on our behalf. But when it came to this man, who is the Son of God, you remember the day came after his resurrection when he took his disciples out as far as Bethany, across the top of the Mount of Olives. And the Gospel of Luke tells us that he raised his hands and began to bless them. And while he was blessing them like this, a cloud received him out of their sight as he went up into heaven. The scene of that just left them staring up in wonder, in bewilderment. That's why the angels, when they appeared, said, why stand you gazing up into heaven like this? Folks, the big question is, 
what happened on the other side of the cloud. The scripture tells us that there are three heavens. There is the atmospheric heaven around our earth. That's the space in which the clouds float. And beyond that, there are the celestial heavens. They're populated by all of those countless stars, by planets and other bodies. The scripture says here, verse 14, that our high priest has passed through the heavens. He passed through the atmospheric heavens and through the celestial heavens. And what he entered is what the scripture calls the third heaven. And this book tells us in chapter 10, every priest stands daily ministering and offering, oftentimes, the same sacrifices which can never take away sins, but this man, who is the Son of God, that's the whole point of the Gospels. That claim is what he was crucified for. The resurrection was the declaration that he is the Son of God. This man, who is the Son of God, after he had offered one sacrifice forever, sat down on the right hand of the majesty on high. We have as our high priest, Jesus, the very Son of God. And he is tonight not in any earthly precinct here on this earth, nor is he inhabiting any planet out there in the celestial heavens. He has passed through the heavens. He's entered the very presence of God. And when he appeared, in the words of Psalm 110, which are quoted several times in this book, in the words of that psalm, God the Father said to him, Sit thou at my right hand. And that is where our high priest is tonight. Now verse 15, here is the third great fact about our high priest. And that is one of his abilities. It's put negatively, we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses. Meaning, of course, that it is the opposite that is true. That we do have a high priest who can entirely sympathize with our weaknesses. That, folks, is one of the most precious to us of all of his abilities. The power that he displayed when he performed miracles. The wisdom that proceeded from his lips when he taught. The flawlessness of his life as he lived. Those are all precious. But one of the most precious 
of all things about him is this ability that even though he is the son of God he is entirely sympathetic with our infirmities, with our weaknesses. What is this referring to, our weaknesses or our infirmities? It's not referring here to our sinfulness. It's referring to those liabilities that are ours because we are human beings, because we are creatures. And beyond that, because we are creatures who are living in bodies affected by the fall, and in a world that has been delivered over to vanity, where even the animal creation itself groans and travails in pain together. It's our weakness. What kind of weakness did you wrestle with this week? What are your infirmities? Many, many of them are common to us. They appear on our Wednesday night prayer request sheets. Someone has such and such a need. We read that. We think to ourselves, I've been there. I understand that. There are other things that are on that sheet. People are asking for our intercessions regarding, and we as yet have not experienced that, but we've seen so many of our brothers and sisters in that situation. Those are what this passage is talking about. The weaknesses, the sicknesses, the fatigue, the coming to the end of life, the lack of wisdom, the bewilderment, the loss of certain things, uncertainties regarding our future, responsibilities that we simply don't feel that we have the ability to contend with and wait to bear. The Lord Jesus Christ, being the Son of God, seated at the Father's right hand, is not distant. He's not insensitive. He is the most sympathetic person possible. When I first came here to the church, our former pastor, Mr. Boyd, uh, asked me to take the Wednesday evening services. And uh, as I would preach, Pastor Boyd always sat right on the platform right behind me. And it was a small platform, so we were very close. In fact, Pastor Rush often tells the story of one time I was swinging my arms, and I swung my arm back, and Pastor Boyd went like this. <laughs> I'd almost, we were that close, that almost hit him. And there were a few times when Pastor Boyd got up after I preached and he would very gently, trying hard not to reflect on me, but he would correct something. And he, you know, the last thing in his mind was to embarrass me, but he felt very strongly about being right with what the Scripture had said and not leaving the people in any confusion. And I'm sure that he must have been very aware of the sensitivity of that. One day I was in his office over on campus. He was a full-time member of the Bible faculty over there. And we were just talking a little bit about the preaching. And he said, Brother Mark, I want you to know, in a deep southern voice, I can't even begin to imitate it. I want you to know that when you preach... There's nobody there more sympathetic with you 
than I am. And you know, it didn't even occur to me to doubt that. Because he was a preacher. And he knew the heart of a preacher and the failings of a preacher and the weaknesses and the disappointments after long, long hours of preparation and then your sermon falls so flat you wish there was a trap door in the pulpit that opened up and let you drop through. There's nobody more sympathetic there than I am. You know, I'm sure that the Lord could say that in all sincerity and it ought never occur to us to doubt it. There's no one more sympathetic with your infirmities than I am. I know them all. What a marvelous, precious ability he has as our high priest. And the way this is put in the negative, we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize. Folks, it's almost as if that statement is made that way as a kind of a little bit of a gentle rebuke. Like it's stated that way in terms of his knowledge that, that that's our thought or our suspicion that he really doesn't understand because of who he is and even who he was when he was on earth he couldn't possibly understand don't do him that injustice he understands everything And the fourth of the great facts about our high priest here and about his nature is his experiences as they're stated in verse 15. And it is tied in with the matter of his sympathy with our infirmities. Let's read the verse again and you'll see the tie. We do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, our infirmities. But we have one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. We are told here this fourth great fact about our high priest, and that is his experience of being tempted in every respect. Now that needs to be clarified. That is referring to his being tempted in every respect in which his humanity was similar to ours. There is a point, a major area in which his humanity was not similar to ours. What was it? That seems to be what is referred to at the end of the verse when it says, without sin. Now, it's true that he never sinned. But that statement is probably not making that point. 
that statement is probably referring to the fact that he was tempted in every point apart from this. That none of his temptations came from within as a possessor of a sin nature. He was without that. His humanity was absent a sin nature. But in every other way that his humanity was similar to ours, the scripture says that he was tempted. Now some of his temptations are recorded in the Bible, right? But some of them are not. And yet we know something about what they would have been because of the nature, the true nature of our Lord and the nature of weaknesses and infirmities. For instance, the Bible tells us that after he had fasted for 40 days and 40 nights, he hungered. The Bible tells us that on one occasion when he left Judea on his way to Galilee and passed through Samaria and you enter into a mountainous region high up in the center of Israel and when they finally came to Samaria or Old Shechem, the Bible says that he was tired from that journey, that he sat on Jacob's well, he was fatigued. The Bible tells us, of course, that at the tomb of Lazarus, emotionally he was so moved that he what? That he wept. The Bible, of course, tells us perhaps the most about these kinds of things in the last day of his life, when in Gethsemane he's sorrowful, he's distressed, to the point of sweating blood, Luke twenty-two forty-four. He thirsted on the cross. He cried out of a sense of the loss of the Father's presence. These kinds of things. That's enough to illustrate this point. That we can assume certain ways in which he would have been tempted even though the Bible does not record his being tempted. But we know, we know that in times of weakness or certain kinds of infirmities, that certain kinds of temptations go with those. When you're tired, when you're overwhelmed by people, when you have no time for yourself, when you've sustained great loss, when you're deserted by friends, when you're betrayed by someone you trusted implicitly. There are temptations that go with infirmities. And the Scripture puts this together. He can entirely sympathize with you and your weaknesses. He was in all points tempted. And it's referring, you can see, to the kinds of temptations that come because of being a human being with all of those kinds of things. Now folks, think of it this way. You may have been coming to the Lord's table perhaps a number of times now, maybe tonight for the first time, and you really don't find a leap in your heart about coming for grace to be applied to the flame in your life 
of your being a new creature in Christ and the life of that in you, you can hardly bring yourself to think of coming. And it's basically due to the fact not just that you've sinned somewhere, but you've had some hopes that have been dashed. Great disappointment in your heart. Maybe you're experiencing, and I truly say this with not the sympathy of having experienced this, but with truly a heart that thinks often of this for our people, the loneliness of widowhood. Do you know that could keep you from coming? That infirmity and the temptation that is connected with that? Long hours at work through the night. Ceaseless demands of small children. Constant struggle to find work and make ends meet. Those kinds of things discourage people to where they may mechanically take part in this table because they don't have some known sin that they have to confess so they partake of this but their hearts are really not in it they're not expecting to obtain mercy to find more grace their flame is burning low And the devil takes all of these things about our circumstances and our infirmities and he douses our spirits with them. How is the flame to be maintained? Bunyan portrays the necessity of grace being applied by Jesus Christ. How and when does that take place? It takes place because we have a great high priest. And it takes place, among other times, when we draw near. And when we come to this table. And we do so with full confidence and full faith. We began tonight with a slide of a great monument. That is referred to by the people who work in St. Paul's all the time, the clergy, as the most spectacular of all of the monuments there. And there are many of them. My wife and I spent some time standing in front of that last summer. I took, I don't know how many pictures of it from various angles. The man whose monument that is, is buried down below in the crypt. He's not buried in that monument. But his name was Arthur Wellesley. He is referred to by his title as the Duke of Wellington. And it was due to his victory over Napoleon in 1815 at Waterloo that Napoleon's bid to completely conquer Europe was ended. And Wellington to this day is a great hero in the whole history of Great Britain that 
people there really glory in. Now, I don't know whether Arthur Wellesley, the Duke of Wellington, was really a truly born-again man. He was a member of the Church of England. He was a Protestant. And he regularly attended their worship services. And those services involve people coming forward at the end for what we would call the Lord's table. They refer to it as communion or Holy Eucharist or other terminology, but it's a parallel to what we're observing tonight. And because of Wellington's stature in the nation, it was customary that when it came time for the people to go forward, and he would go forward, that everyone else would hold back so that no one was there at the same time with him to receive the bread and the cup. And on one occasion, as Wellesley had gone forward, a rather shabbily dressed, bent over, older man came out of the crowd and went and knelt beside him. And one of the clergy, just as unobtrusively as he could, bent over the man and told him that really he needed to draw back. And Wellesley overheard that and looked up and said to the clergy, no, no, let him stay. We're all equal at the foot of the cross. That's true. That is true. It's all for every one of us, rich and poor, powerful and weak, dismayed and discouraged, or filled tonight with vigor and anticipation, weak and wounded, sick and sore, or victorious and triumphant, walking with great confidence before the Lord. It's for you. And it's God's intention that we all draw near tonight because we have this great high priest and that we obtain more mercy and that we receive more grace to help us in our time of need. Oh Lord, help us tonight, we pray. Grant that by your grace, we would not draw back in unbelief or shame, in disappointment or loneliness or bitterness or anger or strife. Gracious Lord, we pray that every true Christian would now be drawn by your Spirit to Jesus Christ again. And we pray that as we partake of this table tonight, and we do these things outwardly, that we truly would receive tonight inwardly more grace, and that it would keep alive this life that we have in our hearts.
We pray in Christ Jesus' precious name. Amen. You may be here tonight as a visitor, and we're so grateful to have you with us. If you know yourself to be a Christian and to have this person, this man, this Son of God, as your only representative before God, your mediator, and this is your confidence just as this passage says, and this is your confession, Christ Jesus, Christ alone, then we want to invite you to please partake of this with us tonight. We are all one in the Lord, though we may not all be members of the same church, or we may not even be the same denominationally, but we all know the Lord. We're all members of His body. If you're not a Christian... And very often in our services, we have people who are not. And we're very glad that you are here tonight. But you, sh- you really should just observe tonight. And the reason for that, of course, is that you would not want to participate in something that as yet you don't, you don't believe. And the way our Lord designed what we're going to do tonight is that by partaking of the fruit of the vine and partaking of a small portion of bread, that we, as it were, are acting out in picture form that we are partakers of all of the saving benefits of Christ having shed His blood for us and of His body being broken on the cross in order for that blood to be shed. We take this into ourselves. We feed on it. And in the words of our Lord in John chapter 6, we are, as it were, eating of His flesh, drinking of His blood. He went on in that passage to make clear the flesh profits nothing. He wasn't talking about literally eating His literal flesh. He made that clear in that passage. But what He is making clear giving to us is a picture of this wonderful reality. And you want to be genuine. And if this isn't the reality for you, then you don't want to participate in portraying it by what you do tonight. The thing to do is just to observe and to think on this and to ask yourself, do I have Do I have the only acceptable priest with God? Someday, sooner than I anticipate, perhaps in a way that I could never dream of it happening, I'm going to enter the presence of God. When I do, will I have a priest there? Or will I be on my own? 
if I want to have a priest, who will it be? You don't want another sinful man or woman. You want the sinless, spotless Son of God who was sent by God the Father for that very purpose. To be a sacrifice and to be your priest. And one who's entirely sympathetic with all of your weakness, who knows what it is to be tempted like you've been tempted, who is sinless, and you can come and receive grace from him. Would you please just observe, just watch and listen tonight, and in your heart, think on these things. And by the grace of God, when this meeting is over tonight, perhaps you will give your heart to Christ. You don't need to wait till the end. You can do it now, but it probably would be good for you to reflect on this. And for the rest of us, please, the men will distribute these elements, and as they do, we will have quiet time to pray and do business with the Lord, and then we'll eat together and we'll drink together. Our Heavenly Father, it has been our joy tonight to think of the great privilege that we have of having our great High Priest, the Lord Jesus, who is sympathetic with all of our weaknesses, all of our limitations. We praise you and thank you for the body that you prepared for him, that he might live a perfect life and that we might receive his perfect righteousness by faith. And we thank you that he died for our sins. We thank you that this bread symbolizes that fact, that he did it for us. And Lord, please help all of us who know him to remember that our taking of this emblem reminds us that we have tasted of the Lord. We have taken him to be ours We thank you for him in Jesus' name. Amen.
The Lord Jesus, the same night in which he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, Take, eat. This is my body, which is broken for you. This do in remembrance of me. Father, we have heard you from you tonight, Lord. We thank you for your mercy and your all-sufficient grace. Thank you for the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ and his willingness to take our sins in his own body on the cross. And thank you that that blood cleanses us from all of our sin. Thank you that he overcame death and hell on our behalf. Lord, we pray that you'd help us to keep these things in remembrance and, and to always have you set before our eyes and always remembering what you have done for us and before the cross. In Jesus' name, amen.
After the same manner also he took the cup, saying, This cup is the New Testament in my blood. This do ye as oft as ye drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as ye do eat this bread and drink this cup, ye do show the Lord's death till he come. And all the Lord's people said, Even so, Lord Jesus, quickly come. Let's take our hymn books and turn to a number that I'm, I, I really doubt that we have ever closed a Lord's Table service with before. It's number 66 in our large hymn book, Hymns of Grace and Glory. It's entitled, Lord Enthroned in Heavenly Splendor. Now let's do this. Let's sing the first stanza with our musicians helping us. And then after that, let's sing the last four stanzas without the instruments. I think that will help us just to concentrate on the words that we have here. You'll see when we come to the third stanza, it concerns our great high priest, wonderful truth that's there regarding his intercessions for us. Number 66, Lord, now listen to this, where is your high priest? Enthroned in heavenly Splendor. Let's stand together and sing.
You know, you should never say amen with a question mark at the end. It contradicts the very word. But is that right? Amen. Amen. That's all certain. It's wonderful. May the Lord help us today and throughout this week now to live by grace. Good night. We're dismissed.